You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. If you could stand to honor the reading of God's Word, we are we're going to look at two different passages. The first one will be Jeremiah chapter, uh, chapter 9, and uh, the second passage we're going to look at or we'll read together is Second uh, Timothy chapter three, and uh, and yeah. So Jeremiah chapter nine, beginning with verse twenty-three. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And then go skip on over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If uh, if you're wondering, if you're if you're you know just new to Meadowbrook, uh, we're starting a new sermon series today, today, titled "Questionable." I wish I could say that I came up with that title. I didn't. Josh, for uh, the lead pastor of Berean Church over coffee, I had shared with him months ago this idea of a sermon series where I would invite the congregation or Meadowbrook to submit uh, a topic that I've not preached on. And he came up with, we'll call it questionable. I'm like, that's really, really good. I wish my brain worked that fast. So that's what it's called, questionable. Now, we had received over 40 submissions of topics from you, from Meadowbrook, uh, uh, for the sermon series. So there was some overlap with some of those topics. I had to get creative and blend, you know, some of those topics for for you know individual Sundays. So this is what happened as a result. There were some topics that were submitted that I had already addressed in previous sermons. Uh, there were some topics, not many, actually very few, that when I shared with the elders. Uh, hey, do you think I should address this on a Sunday morning or should I address it in another way? And they said, not on Sunday morning, uh, just because of how sensitive some of the topics were. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to still address every topic that was submitted, but the, one, the topics that I've already addressed since I've arrived, what, four years ago at Meadowbrook, and those sensitive topics that we feel like, hey, on a Sunday morning, just logistically making sure there are no kids in the room. Uh, we'll, I'll do that through e-letters. Through, so through the e-letters, starting next week, I'll begin to address the topics that I either addressed already or the, sen- the ones of sensitive nature. <laughs> There's one. Uh, it makes me more nervous than preaching um, sermons on Sunday. I'm trying to figure out, how do I address this? So now your curiosity's peaked. So, hey, if you don't get the e-letter, uh, here, uh, fill this out. Let us know how you found out about us, if you could, and also your, your email, and you will get the e-letter. An e-letter goes out every week. So there's my little plug for that again. 
And then now, like, so what's left? Well, there are 13 sermons in the sermon series to address topics that I've not really addressed before. There are a couple where I kind of addressed them, but, um, but by and large, I've not addressed them. Ranging from the Trinity, like what does the Bible teach about the Trinity, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, any of you kind of feel mystified by that a little bit? The Trinity? Nobody? Everybody's got the Trinity nailed down. Okay, good. Um, I will step down now, and you don't need me to preach. Women in leadership? Like, w- w- so the, what I'm calling it is, where are all the women pastors? <laughs> and so I'm going to address that. Uh, there's a whole bunch of topics. Here's what I want to say to you, though. This is one of the reasons why some of my pastor friends were a little concerned that I may be opening up a can of worms that, uh, that, that will make some, some at Meadowbrook maybe angry or frustrated. There are, there are things that I'm going to address that some of you, obviously because you submitted topics, feel very passionate about. Uh, and you may be holding that topic with a clenched fist, and, and maybe you submitted the topic because you just want to know where I stand on it or where the elders at Meadowbrook or where Meadowbrook stands on it. Here are two categories. There's actually three categories, but there are two categories that I think is worth our time and energy that I, I lump all the scripture into. The first category is, are, are those things that are our primary issues or primary concern. I call them gospel issues. These are the, the, the primary issues are the hills that you will die on. So let me give you an example of some, uh, some examples of primary issues. Uh, and this is just my phrase. I don't know if anybody calls them this, but I just thought this, this makes sense to me. Uh, the origin of the universe, God created it. That's a primary issue for me. I don't think this happened by accident. Uh, a primary issue for me is and Meadowbrook, because it's in our doctrinal statements, uh, the Bible is the Word of God. From cover to cover, we believe it to be authoritative. That's a primary issue. A primary issue is that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He lived a life that we could never live. He died a death that each and every one of us deserved. We all deserved hell. We all deserved God's condemnation. Jesus went to a cross in our place for our sins. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. That is a primary issue. I hold that with a clenched fist, and so do the elders at Meadowbrook. Um, and I could go on and on, like his second coming. And, uh, you know, you, you get the point, right? Secondary issues. And this is where you can get confused, where you can confuse primary issues with secondary issues and secondary issues with primary issues. Some of you are holding on to secondary issues as if they were primary issues. Your faith and your, and the, the, your eternal you know, plight rests on some secondary issues that you're holding on to. Some, so what are some secondary issues? <laughs> most of the, what the sermon address, the series, I mean, most of the series addresses secondary issues. There are some primary issues we're going to address. Here's what I want you to hear before I tell you what secondary issues are. Secondary issues are important, but your eternal plight is not dependent on those secondary issues. Like those, the secondary issues, you should not be willing to die on those hills. You should be holding those issues with an open hand. Lord, I, want to, I really want to understand what, you, what your word teaches on this. And um, I'm holding on to it, but if, if I'm proven wrong, it's not going to wreck my faith. Like if it was proven that Jesus never rose from the grave, guess what? 
I am out partying and living every last minute of my life, you know, just like the Apostle Paul said, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Jesus' resurrection is a primary issue. If he didn't rise from the grave, what am I doing? Uh, secondary issue, women pastors. I, that's not a hill I'm going to die on. I have my convictions on what the Bible teaches, and so does Meadowbrook. Um, but that's a secondary issue. The timing, the duration of, of creation, how long it took God to, to form the galaxies and the universe is a secondary issue. Primary issue, he did it. Secondary issue, what is, the, is the Hebrew word yom? Is that a 24-hour literal day or is that an age or a time frame? You know, I have gospel-believing, Bible-believing uh, men and women that I know who hold to the, the, the belief that, that Genesis, chapter, Genesis chapter 1 represents hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of years. That's a secondary issue. Like, if they're wrong, they're not going to hell because they believe that. If I'm wrong that God created everything in six literal days, which I believe he did, and I think I could support it from Scripture, if I'm wrong, my eternal plight is not dependent on six literal days of creation. Jesus rising from the grave, my eternal plight is dependent on that. <laughs> Make sense? Cool. All right. So yeah, I, I want to just throw that out there just so you understand the nature of the sermon series. Where I'm going to address some secondary issues. They're important issues. We should try to seek our, you know, what God says about those issues or those topics, but at the end of the day, uh, it shouldn't divide us. You know what will divide us? If you came up to me and you said, I don't believe Jesus rose from the grave, my response to that is, I don't think you're a Christian. That, I mean, that's the primary issue. And then there's a third category. Here's the third category. I'm smiling a little bit. <laughs> the third category is, the Bible doesn't even address it. Like, think about Moses, who wrote the first five books of Genesis. He was standing on the dirt, looking in the sky, putting together, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing out this account in Genesis. He didn't have a telescope. He, he, like, Genesis chapter 1 doesn't talk about the size of, of, of our sun in our solar system. It's, it's not even concerned about that. What it's concerned about is God did it. Now, I have a sermon, a sermon in this series titled, Where Are All the Dinosaurs? I'm not just going to talk about dinosaurs. I just thought it was a fun title for a sermon. Uh, I'm going to talk about Genesis chapter 1 through 4. But there are certain things that the Bible doesn't address. And you, it's okay to have an opinion on those things, but they're not even secondary issues. And, and we live in a day and age where there are as a number of theories, and conspiracy theories, as there are voices on YouTube. So we, we need to be mindful that there are some things just not worth arguing about. Like here are some things that the Bible doesn't speak into. Did Adam and Eve have a belly button? <laughs> and so many other things. It's just, not, it's just not worth, you know, spending a whole lot of energy addressing. 
So what are, what are, uh, what's another good example of a, a secondary issue for me? For those of you who know me well enough know, and if, you were to, and if you don't know me, if you were to ask some of my pastor friends, is Keith Miller a Calvinist or is he an Arminian? Uh, how many of you even know what Calvinism and Arminianism is? Okay. If you were to ask uh, them that question, anybody who knows me well enough, they would say, Keith is a, he is a hard Calvinist. Um, but I have very close friends who are hard Arminians. <laughs> They're in this church. I, I, and, and even I've had some of them, I've asked some of them to preach. They're very close friends uh, to me. Uh, my Calvinism, secondary issue, open hand. If I'm wrong, who cares? Um, I think I know what the Bible says about these things, but it's not a gospel issue for me. All right, so I'm going to say all that. Because actually there was a, there was a topic that was uh, submitted Calvinism versus Arminianism. I've already preached on that. I've addressed it in my Roman series. I'll, I'll address it in an, in an e-letter in, in the weeks to come. Here's the other thing. There's a reason why in our ancient creeds. How many of you have heard of the, the Apostles' Creed? Just, just curious. Okay, a good number of you. How many of you have heard of the Nicene Creed? Wow, actually more of you than the first service. But there's a reason why in, these, in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and other creeds, these are creeds that are, date hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. In fact, the Nicene Creed was written in A.D. 325, I believe. And so that was a long time ago. It was not some, there's this conspiracy theory that Constantine, who wanted to Christianize the known world, you know, wanted this, this council to be formed because he wanted to manipulate what the Bible taught concerning the Trinity. That's not what happened. There was there was concern about some teaching in the church regarding the origin of Jesus Christ. Was he created or did he exist like in eternity past, like always existed? In fact, you, there was, there's a group of, of people who, who sided with the minority who believe that Jesus was created. And that group, is, I mean, we, we know some of them, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses. And so there's this creed, the Nicene Creed, that uh, was, was written to set the record straight. I believe that when you read this, what you read in the Nicene Creed are issues that are of primary concern. These are gospel issues. So, actually, for the first time, for some of you, we're going to read the Nicene Creed together. So let's read this together. Ready? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. 
We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Don't get hung up on Catholic. Catholic just means universal. Capital C Church, the bride of Jesus Christ, the church that, that you know, is peppered all throughout the world. That's, that's of primary concern. We stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. Anything that's listed in the Nicene Creed, it was believed and still believed today that you, you, you cannot claim to believe the Bible and to be a Christian and reject those things. The stuff that's not mentioned in the Bible, I'm mindful of what the Apostle Paul instructed Timothy. Just, just a handful of verses before the passage that we read at the beginning of the, of the sermon. He said this, "...had nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone." able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's what controversies do. The evil one will, will, will try his best to distract you from focusing on primary issues. And Paul was telling this young pastor in Ephesus, don't get caught up in that stuff. Don't get caught up in it. It's not worth your time. So there are two points that I have in my sermon. And the first is that the ways that God has revealed himself. And here's, again, just setting up the sermon series. Uh, how has God revealed himself? Well, theologians uh, have used two phrases to describe this. We see it actually in the book of, Revelation, or of, the book of Romans in the first chapter. There's general revelation, and then there's special revelation. General revelation, the, uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, by things seen, you'll know that there's a God. Well, how do you know that there's a God? How many of you camp? Go camping. I'm, right, I don't. I ride a bike. So... But when you go outside and you see the trees and you see, you know, if you're by a lake, you see a lake or if you're fishing or, or you're looking at the, the grass or the dirt or the mountains around you, what is, it, what is that stuff telling you about God? It's telling you that God exists. That, I mean, <laughs> you know, like the psalmist said that there's a national holiday for the person who, who doesn't believe that God exists. The fool has said in his heart, that God does not exist, right? And so, by things seen, you know that there's a God. But do the trees and do, does the lake and do the mountains and does the grass and do the flowers, do they tell you everything that you need to know about God? No. This is why you can't do church in the wilderness somewhere. <laughs> you, we need each other. We need to be under the teaching of God's uh, special revelation. God's special revelation is the way that he supernaturally has revealed himself. So yeah, I look at the sun, I see the moon, I see the stars. You know, in the night when, when there's no light pollution, you can see all the star, you can see all these stars up in the sky. It tells you that God is big. Special revelation tells us that He's revealed Himself to you and I. Like He's revealed Himself to us. And, and how has He done that? Well, in this case, we believe that the Bible, this is another primary of primary concern the bible is without error I, I think i can prove that to you from genesis to revelation just give me enough time i, I it's compri comprised of 39 different authors that contributed to this book over the span of thousands of years 
Moses writing the first five books of the Bible, the Apostle John writing in A.D. 90-something on the island of Patmos, the book of Revelation. And not within this book, from cover to cover, there is not one theological, theological contradiction. I know that's a bold statement. I think I can prove that to you too. Just give, give me some time and we, we can do coffee or whatever together. There might be grammatical mistakes or whatever, but anybody who's read this book cover to cover, it, it's theologically consistent. It's a story about one God. This, it's about his glory. It's God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, he, there's, there's this mission that he's called his people to. We learn about that mission in Genesis chapter, chapter 1, and, and we learn of its conclusion in Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter, the last chapter. It's consistent. Uh, the, here's the other thing you need to know about this, though. And this is what I love about the Bible. God in his providence, in his sovereignty, he breathed through. Like, so Paul uses this unique word in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is God-breathed. It's one Greek word. It's used only one time in the entire New Testament and is used here. That God breathed out. He, God breathed. How did, he got, how did he do this? He moved, supernaturally moved through the personalities and experiences and geographical context of these human authors that he decided to use. Like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you put 10 people in the same room to write about the same thing, they're going to contradict each other. You got 39 people over the span of thousands of years and there's no theological contradiction here? It should say something about the authority of the, uh, of the Bible. And, and in the scriptures, God has revealed himself. Now, there are other ways that he's revealed himself supernaturally, like Jesus was born of a virgin. And now we know of Jesus because of what we read in the Bible, but we also know of Jesus because of he was a historical figure who actually lived and breathed and died on a cross. And the tomb that he was put in is now empty, it's vacant, all that historical fact. But the Word of God is, is the, the principal means by, that God has revealed himself. A.W. Tozer said that the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most pretentious fact about any man is what he at any given time may say or do uh, but what in his deep heart conceives God to be like. I, I, it's one of my favorite quotes from A.W. Tozer. He was a pastor in the 1950s. A guy who predates Tozer, a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon, said this about the study, uh, the study of the Bible. He said, I believe that the proper study of God's elect, that is the Christian, is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God, is the, is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. Your time and energy is worth Studying this book, God has revealed himself through it. It's God's special revelation given to you for the purpose of knowing him. You cannot know God personally by staring at the moon or the stars or hanging out camping. You can only know him personally through the way he's revealed himself supernaturally. And this leads me to the second point, that you can know God through his word. I think at least 300 times the phrase in the Bible from cover to cover is that, the word, that this is the word of the Lord. This is the testimony of the Bible. This is the word of the Lord. 
This is the word of the Lord. Like I said, like there are 30, at least 39 contributors to the Bible that God used who were guided by the Holy Spirit and uh, coming together over a period of time spanning thousands of years. And, and, and God used them. He used their, their context. He used their limited vocabulary. Like he used them. Like even English is an evolving language, right? What's, what's language? It's just it's a bunch of like, sounds put together to formulate some kind of intelligent thought. It said that, I don't know how true this is, but somebody said of babies, the reason why they coo and ka, they're enunciating every known syllable in the, in the human vocabulary. Like in their DNA, in our DNA is the ability to learn language. And we, we look at the Bible. What are we, I was sharing this with, with the youth group last Sunday. You look at the Bible, you look at the words, or look at the letters. They're just symbols put together to, form, to, to make meaning. And God used all of that to convey who he is. That, uh, that's, that's amazing to me. And so Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for certain things. What is it profitable for, Paul? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's what it's profitable for. Well, well how much of it is profitable for that, Paul? All of it. <laughs> All of it is. Now, of course, when Paul wrote this, John was not on the island of Patmos yet. When Paul wrote first, or Second Timothy, it was probably in A.D. 60-something, A.D. 65. Paul was in prison. He was about to be executed. He was going to have his head literally cut off. And he wrote 2 Timothy. John, 30 years later, would be on the island of Patmos when he would write the book of Revelation. Um, all throughout the scripture, the, 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 these letters and these books affirm the authority of these various letters and these books. Even Peter said, what Paul wrote, some of it's pretty difficult to understand, but it's scripture. It's inspired by God. All of it. Every last word. And, uh, and, and how is it breathed out? Through the personalities of these individuals. That's, that's the staggering thing for me. Think about Moses. No telescope, no, no, no pictures from NASA. No, like, no, he didn't have any of that at his disposal. He just had what was handed down from generation to generation that God protected. And then as he put this into writing, God... God worked through him and inspired him and guided him to give us a, like, for example, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that is still timeless today. Like, what do you do with Moses? Like, you're, here you are, you have this very limited vocabulary. It's Hebrew. Uh, and, and this is sometime after the Exodus. And he's in the wilderness somewhere. I mean, don't misunderstand. Like, don't misunderstand. Adam and Eve weren't here, they weren't writing their account of their lives, right? And Moses was, was putting this all together in these first five books of the Bible. And here he is on the dirt in the wilderness. And what does he see with his eyes? He sees maybe some mountains. He sees, he sees in the night, he sees the starry house. He sees all these things. And, and God uses his experience and his limited vocabulary, vocabulary that I think Moses had to stretch to try to, 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 to write what he was trying to articulate, 
And, and God used it in such a way that it tells us exactly what we need to know today in 2023. This is why I don't get bent out of shape over how many solar systems are in our universe. I don't know. I'm not really concerned about it. I think what NASA does and what others do, I think is great. Like, if you're able to hop on a rocket and take a tour around the moon and back again or, or set up a colony on Mars, have at it. I don't care. Like, what, what, what I care about is God did it. He did it. And, it, and, and like the psalmist says in, the, in Psalm, I think, 8 or 9 or whatever, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Somebody said, well, if we're the only life form on planet Earth, it seems like a big waste of space when you consider the universe. I'm like, no, not really. The universe is telling us how big God is. Somebody asked me, do you believe in aliens? I don't know. I don't care. Like, I, my faith is big enough to handle, like if some Martian just landed in my backyard from Timbuktu planet of wherever and, and got out and said, greetings, earthling, like, it's not going to ruin my faith. <laughs> Why? Because the Bible, didn't, the Bible never says there are no Martians or whatever, no aliens. It says that God created it all. That's what I need to know. And he created me to have a relationship with him. I need to know that. And God used Moses to convey that. So as Moses was writing this, God didn't tell Moses, hey, by the way, Adam had a, a kidney, and, uh, or two kidneys, and no belly button, or he had a belly button, or hey, you should think about how amazing the eyeball is and what it's able to do, or hey, I'm also, I also put into him this, this computer called a brain that's amazing. Uh, like he, he didn't feel the need to tell Moses all that stuff. All Moses needed to know is that this creature that is human, that is set apart from the rest of creation and is called to manage the earth and to worship Yahweh, behind all of that is God, who is personal and, and has created us to know him and to have a relationship with him. And Isaiah, like one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 6. It's a description of heaven. If you've been here for any length of time, I love talking about heaven. I will talk about hell in this sermon series because that was a topic that was submitted. But I love talking about heaven. Do you think Isaiah was able to wrap his mind around what he had, you know, the stuff that he had seen he never saw before in Isaiah chapter 6? Like, how do you describe these creatures that are seraphim, that got these, these three sets of wings, and they got eyes here and there, and they're circling around the throne, and you've got this one sitting on the throne, and the train of his robe is filling the temple. Like, how do you describe that with your limited use, your, the limited vocabulary that you have available to you? You use the language that you know. And, and you know, John, like, you read the book of Revelation, like I, I know some of you probably think the Re book of Revelation is all literal. No, it's not. It's, telling, uh, it's, it's pointing us to the, the splendor and majesty of Jesus Christ, and yes, it's highlighting the fact that this world has a shelf life, and God is going to bring it to an end, and he's going to rebirth it and make it all new, and all of that, that part of it's literal. But there's a lot of language in there that makes me scratch my head. Like these locusts that have faces like men. Like, What do you make of that? Well, John was like, I don't know. I'll just use my vocabulary and the words that I have available to me and I'll put it on paper. And, and you know what's amazing about all that? Is the book of Revelation is timeless and has served generation after generation of generation to encourage suffering Christians all over the world 
to point them to the reality that Jesus is coming back again. He will judge the living and the dead. He's going to balance the scales of justice, and every last word in the book of Revelation is true. And you can depend upon it. And then, because I, I just kind of geek out over this stuff, as I was sitting in my office, I was just trying to put myself in Moses' place and, and, and Isaiah and, and John. But think about what Moses wrote in, in Genesis chapter 3 when he's retelling the story of the fall and just the horrible nature of it and then God's redemptive plan to turn it all around. Like in Genesis chapter 3, he said, look, like this is what God said to, to Adam and Eve and Moses is putting on, on clay tablets most likely as he's articulating this. And, uh, and he gets to that part of Genesis chapter 3 where God says, you know what? Uh, Adam, every time you bring, try to bring life from the dirt, you're going to be reminded of death. It's going to be hard work. And Eve, every time you give birth, the pain is going to remind you of death. So every time you bring life into this world, you're going to be reminded of death. But here's this promise. And the promise is this, is that I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you think Moses had images in his brain of like, oh, that's Jesus on the cross thousands of years from now? No. All he had in his mind was this promise of this deliverer who's going to make all that's wrong with the world right again. What's amazing about Genesis is Genesis is not a science book. It's an apologetic that God exists. A monotheistic, all-powerful, personal God who made man in his image, that that God exists. Do you know what, in some of the, 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 the gods and stories that the people told in Mesopotamia around Moses, you, you know, this idea of a dragon was something to be celebrated or to be revealed? Do you know what the dragon is reduced to in Genesis chapter 3? A serpent that gets his head crushed. That's the point. That's the point. God's going to turn it all around. So when Moses wrote this, I don't think he was thinking, oh, Jesus is going to be on a cross. And he, he wasn't thinking that. He was just thinking, this is, a, this, is a, this is a savior, this is a hero who's going to come, and he's going to make all that, that's wrong with the world right. I don't think he had in mind, oh, this, is going to be, this person is going to be 100% God and 100% man, all in one person. I, I don't think he had all that data. He just had what the Lord had revealed to him. And then, I, I, and I certainly don't think that when he wrote Genesis chapter 3, verse Verse 15, by the way, there are no chapters and verses when Moses was writing Genesis. When he was writing that, I don't think he was thinking of Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant, and the way that this suffering servant, the one that was foretold of in Genesis chapter 3, I don't think Moses was thinking that this suffering servant would suffer the way that he would suffer in, as described in Isaiah 53, that he was despised and rejected by men. This is how he would have his heel bruised. He was despised and he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one who, from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he, had been, he, had born, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed." And they made his grave with the wicked. I don't think, you know, when Isaiah wrote Isaiah 53, I don't think he was thinking Jesus between two thieves on two crosses and with a rich man in his death. I didn't think 
I don't think God you know, told Isaiah, oh, by the way, that's Joseph of Arimathea who's going to lend his tomb to Jesus. Uh, he was a rich guy. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see the offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And when Isaiah wrote Isaiah 53, I don't think he was thinking of the crucifix. That wasn't even invented yet. It wouldn't be until the Assyrians who would invent like the earliest form of the crucifix, which would be an impalement. The Romans would just perfect the Persians, and then the Romans would perfect the instrument of the crucifix as a, as a way of torturing people. Isaiah wasn't thinking of that, but God was breathing through him and moving through him to write a chapter in Isaiah, a book titled Isaiah that's timeless and speaks into our culture today, speaks into our lives today. And then John, the apostle. I mean, imagine John. 90 AD. What was invented in 90 AD? Not a whole lot. And he, he has this vision of uh, uh, the book of Revelation. He, he sees all these things, and he's told to write it all down, and he writes it all down, and then you get to chapter 5, and it's one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament where he writes down this thing that he sees in all of creation, and between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Now John was able to look back with Old Testament eyes, or called New Testament eyes, and he was able to connect the dots. Oh, this is the one that Moses wrote about in, in Genesis chapter 3. Oh, this is the one that Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 53. This is the one, this is the lamb standing as though he had been slain, and seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll. Who took the scroll? The lamb, the one who, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the, the, the one promised to Adam and Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. He took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. And what song did they sing? Let's, let's read this together. Ready? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's what they sing. And that's what they sing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And do you think, do you think when John saw this, when all the nations are gathered in heaven and they were singing, like all the nations, ethnos, all the people groups are represented there. People groups who had not yet been discovered in AD 90. People groups that were not discovered in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, and some people groups that had not yet been discovered in 2023. Do you think John like, was able to wrap his mind around all that? Think about the technology that enables humans to learn language today. How do you describe a computer in 90 AD or a plane or a boat? That's not the point. The point is, is that God is going to do it. And the book of Revelation in chapter 5 and the rest of the book is timeless. It speaks into our lives. So going back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul instructs this young pastor 
in Ephesus that's surrounded by this pagan culture. You had one of the wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, or the, also known as the Temple of Diana, there on his, in his backyard, and he's pastoring this church, and, and there's all kinds of tension in the church, and there are people listening to these various controversies and making a big deal about those things in the church, and this is what Paul instructs Timothy to do. He says, you know, all of Scripture, every last bit of it is God breathed, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, for, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So therefore, Timothy, this is what I'm telling you to do. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what, what, how people gripe. This is my commission to you before I get my head removed from my body. I charge you in the presence of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, to preach the word. When? Well, to be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And later on he says, because the time is coming where people will not endure sound doctrine, but the word of God is authoritative and it speaks into every life of every person that will be in your, in your church and every person in your world. You preach the word. And so, so this is why we have verses like Hebrews chapter 4, and this is the last thing I'll say, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of souls and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's, that's what this book is able to do. It is God's revelation to you and to me, and it's his love letter to you and to me to, to, so that we may know him. Does it tell us everything about God? No. Does it tell us everything uh, about what's going on in the world? Nope. It tells us what we need to know. That's what it tells us. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you that we have a Bible that we can open and study. And God, I pray for each and every person in this room watching the live stream that they will take what they hear and they will measure it against your word, your holy word, all 66 books from Genesis through Revelation. I thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.